Can you think of a singer who is just as loved for portraying a tragic Verdi heroine as for playing a ruthless Verdi villain? Can you think of one? We'll share our pick in just a few moments on this episode of the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast. The Metropolitan Opera Guild is dedicated to enriching people's lives through an awareness and deeper appreciation of opera. Our podcast features lectures and events presented by the Guild in support of performances at the Metropolitan Opera. The Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast is funded in part by support from the Stuart J. Pierce Memorial Fund. To learn more, visit metguild.org. Soprano Renata Scotto gave a famously chilling interpretation of Lady Macbeth in Verdi's take on Shakespeare's play. But Scotto was just as loved for tugging at our heartstrings in roles like Louisa Miller. I'm Naomi Baratera, and in this episode of the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast, Met Radio commentator Ira Siff explores the artistry of legends such as Renata Scotto, Maria Callas, Astrid Varney, and others in the second installment of his Villains and Victims series. So last week we began our look at some of opera's uh, villains and victims, and we talked about how the portrayal of these characters evolved from the creation of opera in the 17th century right through the Verismo operas of the early 20th century, the final period in which uh, a great number of operas were written. We also, of course, indulged in listening to a number of great singers portray the evil ones and their beleaguered targets. And we looked a bit at how blurry the lines can sometimes be between uh, pure villain and just misunderstood or wronged individual turning to villainous behavior as a result of being disappointed in love or some other perceived wrong. And remember, even Scarpia thinks he's right. I mean, he just does his job as chief of police for the queen, and he desires the beautiful Tosca. What's so wrong with that? (laughs) Jealousy in matters of love and power seem to be at the center of pitting one creature against the other in opera, as in life. Perhaps the ultimate wronged woman who commits the ultimate revenge in all opera is Medea. Luigi Cherubini based his 1797 opera comique on versions of the story from the plays by Euripides and Corneille. Don't be confused by the term opera comique. This is not a frothy little operetta about infanticide. It just means that it is uh, an opera with spoken dialogue between the musical numbers, just like Carmen, only composed 80 years earlier. Medea met with less than ecstatic reception uh, at its premiere, but it kept resurfacing in various versions, first German ones. But at the turn of the century, there was an Italian translation, and it employed sung recitatives rather than the spoken dialogue. They had been composed by Lachner for a German presentation, but now they were translated into Italian. So it became, like Carmen, same thing a grand opera without the sung portions being interrupted by uh, spoken portions. This uh, 1909 version was a vehicle for the great soprano Esther Mazzolini. And then after that, the opera disappeared entirely again until 1953, when uh, a young sensation by the name of Maria Callas was asked to perform it on short notice for the Maggio Musicale Fiorentino, the Florence May Festival. Callas's riveting interpretation and her mind-blowing powerhouse vocalism paved the way for a decade of performances by her in this role and a revival of the opera in general. Nowadays, Medea has returned to its original uh, French version with the spoken dialogue purists looking down their noses at the Italian version even though Callas made such a stunning case for it, including those sung recitatives that the purists love to disparage. Medea, the synopsis as we say on the radio, 
Medea has made it possible for Jason Giazzone in the opera to capture the golden fleece, the symbol of power, through her many machinations as a sorceress. And out of great love for him, in exchange for this arduous task, she has demanded marriage, and they have had two children. Now she's repaid by Giazzone, by him marrying up, as it were, to Glauce, the princess of Corinth, and abandoning Medea and claiming their two sons for himself. Medea catches up with him in Corinth. She begs just 24 hours from King Creon, after which she promises to leave. Well, she makes the most of those 24 hours. <laughs> she dispatches Glauce, and she dispatches the two children. And in the bargain, even King Creon, when he attempts to save his daughter from this fiery crown that uh, Medea has given Glauce as a lovely wedding gift. There are six versions of Medea available with Callas. Unfortunately, as with all of her great roles, except Tosca, some of which we'll be watching at our next session in two weeks, uh, none of them is in video. However, with Callas, it was with her voice primarily that she acted. And uh, most complete and perhaps most fascinating is the first version from Florence, 1953, conducted by the great Vittorio Gui. We're going to listen to just the first part of the final scene. I wish we had time for the entire scene. Medea has negotiated one more day in Corinth to spend with her children. In the splendid recitative, she cries out to the gods to assist her in her revenge. Her nursemaid, Neris, who's sung here by the marvelous Fedora Barbieri, brings the children to her to soften her. And Medea's reaction is one of extreme conflict. She sees in them Giazzone's abandonment. For him, she had abandoned her own father and killed her brother. He has now admitted that she has helped him gain glory, but he renounces the crimes that he had her commit in order to bring him to this position. Faced with her sons in the aria, Medea at first melts and asks the gods to extinguish the desire for murderous revenge within her. But toward the end of the aria, her wrath returns. In the balance of this great scene, which we won't have time to hear today, she does indeed do the unthinkable and kill the children. But today we'll stop at the aria's conclusion. Callas uh, is monumental here. She's in the full flower of her youthful vocal estate at 29, still rather fulsome of figure. In fact, it was uh, doing this role that convinced her to uh, do her famous weight loss because she felt that her features weren't sharp enough for this character that she loved to play. Opera's most illustrious evildoer, perhaps, but not entirely without cause. So we're going to listen to this recitative, Numi Venit Me and the aria del fiero duol from Carabinus Medea.
when you consider that voice, and then you consider the voice that she uses in La Sonambula, or Lucia, or Traviata, so it's, it's a voice for that character. Alexander Borodin was by occupation a research chemist who was also an advocate of women's rights. He was also a composer of considerable gifts, recognized by Russia's prominent composers, including Rimsky-Korsakov and Mazorsky and Cesar Kui, all members of the group of five composers, the Kuchka, or Mighty Handful, to which Borodin belonged. And their aim was to find an individual voice for Russian music using folk melody, church music, harmonies, with an individually Russian flavor, or favoring Orientalism, Oriental themes, harmonies, orchestral colors, to set their Russian music apart from that influenced by Western Europe, like Tchaikovsky. One of opera's most conscious, free, and delightfully barbaric villains is Khan Kanchak, the leader of the nomadic Polovtsians in Borodin's Prince Igor. The Russian Prince Igor has set out to conquer the Polovtsians and instead has been defeated and captured. Kanchak has respect for his enemy leader and offers Igor a lovely smorgasbord of items if he promises never to attack again. In his great aria, a fascinating blend of magnanimity and boastful bluster, chromatic figures slithering down in half-steps bring us the mode of Orientalism, which Borodin used to contrast the music of the Polovtsians from the music of the Russians in this opera. Uh, Kanchak offers Igor any tent, any horse, any sword he desires, or any girl says, I have plenty of enchanting beauties. And the aria ends with a somewhat randy, exotic orchestral dance theme. Igor, in the end, refuses this offer in the hope of a victory in the future. We're going to hear the great Bulgarian basso Boris Christov as Khan Konchak, and this recording made early in his international career in 1950. This was the year Christov was supposed to make his Met debut as King Philip in Don Carlo, but the American government, at the height of the McCarthy-era madness, would not admit Christoph into the States, even though he was a resident of Rome and he was married to Tito Golby's daughter, a sister, rather. A great loss for the Met, because Christoph felt so badly treated that he refused all subsequent Met offers. You might say he was Boris Pistoff. <laughs> Christoph has a field day with this marvelous piece, uh, he's just m delightfully wicked. Issy de Brown conducts the Philharmonia Orchestra. Не мало вражей крови, 
мечом я этим пролил, Не разбояв кровавых Отжас смерти сеял мой полот. Подвластно Я красою для всех Был давно Я храбр, я смел Страха я не знаю Все боятся меня все трепещет кругом, но ты меня не боялся, пошады не просил князь. Ах, не врагом быть твоим, а союзником верным, а другом надежным, а братом твоим не хотелось Смотря дальнего учагу, невольницу из-за Каспия, если хочешь, скажи только слово мне, я тебе подарю. У меня есть красавицы черные, косы как змеи на плечи спускаются, очи черные, благой потернуты, нежно и страстно глядят из-под темных бровей. Если хочешь любую из них What can one say about Lady Macbeth? <laughs> Such a charming creature. Well, one can say that as Verdi saw her, she became one of opera's most vocally, dramatically challenging creatures, requiring the prog uh, protagonista to sing in every manner of dramatic coloratura, dark, husky, intoning, fiery recitative, and some more advanced sort of Verdi that he added in the uh, revision uh, 25 years later, and she has to finish all of that uh, on a floated tiny field de voce high D, a thread of tone at the conclusion of the sleepwalking scene in which her conscience finally catches up with her. Renata Scalto told me that Lady Macbeth was her favorite role, and it is clear from this 1984 performance from a PBS gala of the stars at no less than Radio City Music Hall that Scotto relishes every malevolent moment, every layer of guilt, regret, lust that embodies the piece, and even in concert format manages to convey all of this with her voice and face. Interestingly, this aria is not from Verdi's late revision of Macbeth. It is from the 1847 version, so even at that point he was so advanced in his composing. In this train of thought monologue with an insistent rhythm and repeated gnawing motif, uh, Lady relives her crimes and tries in vain to wash away the blood. Verdi traces her recollections of the events tinged with an overlying sadness and sense of regret, at the same time an urgency that speaks of her driven nature. This excerpt is from 1984, and so it is perhaps a bit late for Scotto vocally, 
but I decided rather than play an audio version only uh, from several years earlier, which is a bit smoother vocally, to let us watch Scotto uh, as she takes us through this emotional journey, crowning the taxing aria with the near impossible written high D-flat field of voce. So this is Renata Scotto in the sleepwalking scene from uh, Lady Macbeth, uh, from Macbeth. I always think of the opera as Lady Macbeth. <laughs> and uh, from uh, a concert version in 1984. Thank you. 
So, yeah, what a genius. I guess we were very fussy about her voice at that point, because it sounds fine to me now. In the multicolored, densely layered tapestry woven of the deeds and misdeeds of the characters in, who populate Greek mythology, Clytemnestra is a fascinating figure who is both villain and victim. Uh, due largely to Strauss's monumental one-act opera lecture, we see Clytemnestra as a villainess. Um, having murdered her husband, Agamemnon, who is ultimately the object of well-deserved revenge for murdering her husband and plotting as well the death of her son, Orest, who returns instead and kills her. Never mind the poor Clytemnestra was forced into her marriage with Agamemnon, who had killed her former husband and child, and who also sacrificed one of their daughters, Iphigenia, in order to be granted smooth winds for sailing during the Trojan War for the gods. One of the great confrontation scenes for Soprano and Mezzo is that of Electra and Clytemnestra, in which Electra taunts her mother by telling her that Clytemnestra's horrifying nightmares that haunt her sleepless night after night will end in a blood sacrifice of the proper victim. Appearing docile and Helpful, Electra draws her desperate mother in, then revealing that the victim must be Clytemnestra herself. We begin listening uh, today as Clytemnestra begs Electra to name the victim. Electra says it'll be a woman. Clytemnestra asks who? A maid, a virgin, a woman already known by men? And uh, Clytemnestra asks who'll do the sacrifice? A man, Electra replies. Clytemnestra asks if it would be her own lover, Aegisto, will do it. And Electra replies snidely, I said, a man. <laughs> and then Electra brings up her brother Orest, whom she helped flee to safety after Agamemnon's murder. Clytemnestra lives in fear that Orest will return and avenge his father. And Electra plays on this fear, describing her vision of Orest returning and slaughtering Clytemnestra just as she had slaughtered Agamemnon. Clytemnestra, speechless with terror, until a servant whispers something in her ear. She screams for lights to be brought and makes her way back to the palace laughing hysterically. The news, not accurate of course, is that Orest is dead, so she has nothing to fear. This is her one great moment of triumph before her own murder. We're going to hear a veteran contralto, Res Fischer, as Clytemnestra, and Astrid Varnay as Electra. Von meinen Dienerinnen eine Sarg, ein Kind, ein jungfräuliches Weib, 
ein Weib, das schon erkannt vom Mandel. Ja, erkannt, das ist's. Und wie das Opfer und welche Stunde und wo an jeder Mord zu jeder Stunde. Ich dir verboten. So hast du Furcht vor ihm. Wer sagt das? Mutter, du zitterst ja. Wer fürchtet dich vor einem schwachsinnigen Vieh? Es heißt, er stammelt, liegt im Hofe bei den Hunden und weiß nicht mehr Mensch und Tier zu unterscheiden. Das Kind war ganz gesund. Es heißt, sie gaben ihm schlechte Wohnung und Tiere des Hofes zur Gesellschaft. Ich schickte viel Gold und viel Gold. Sie sollten ihn gut halten wie ein Königskind. Du schickst Gold, damit sie erfahren. Lacke das, sie von meinen Augen an meinen kleinen Zittern sehe ich auch, dass er noch lebt, dass du mein Tag und Nacht an nichts denkst als an ihn. Dass sie das Herz von dort vergrauen, weil du weißt, er kommt. Haus ist. Ich lebe hier und bin die Herrin. Den habe ich genug, die Tore zu bewachen. Und wenn ich will, lass ich bei Tag und Nacht um eine Kammer bleiben.
<laughs> this season, the Met opened with uh, Samson and Delilah, an opera in which the uh, villainous Philistine pagan beauty gives the leader of the Hebrews a haircut he'll never forget and summons her men to capture and blind poor Samson. The legend of Delilah and her relationship with Samson varies from religion to religion. The most famous concerns Delilah being bribed by the lords of the Philistines to seduce Samson, uh, who is wildly attracted to her. He sees her as a sort of shiksa goddess. And to discover the source of his amazing strength, which allows him to perform great feats of heroism, a danger to the Philistines. After two failed attempts at seduction for this purpose, Delilah is enraged and summons all her wiles to seduce Samson and obtain the secret. In Samson's opera, Dalila has three arias, two of which are seductive, and one, of course, is uh, one of the most famous in all opera, Mon Coeur sur Vatavois. When the aria is sung beautifully, it can seduce Samson and the entire orchestra as well. And there are countless wonderful versions of this to listen to. One of my favorites is by Shirley Verrett. The burnished color of her tone, the intensity of the emotion <coughs> draped in flawless legato are quite persuasive. And we're going to watch this live performance from Covent Garden uh, in 1981. Now, her Samson is John Vickers here, very great Samson. Uh, but this is rather at the end of his career. And so... Uh, at the end of her aria where he cries out je t'aime on a high B flat, uh, it's kind of belted out forcefully. In his younger days, he used to sort of float the note, but we can forgive him that. Um, Barrette is the reason we're listening and watching, and she's the quintessential villainous clothed, or in this case about to be unclothed, in seductive beauty.
Our final excerpt uh, comes from an opera in which the villain is named Worm. Gotta love that. And I do indeed love Verdi's Louisa Miller. Louisa was a transitional opera for Verdi, one in which he moved to more personal stories of uh, familial crisis, leading to more intimate operas like Stifelio, Rigoletto, Traviata, from his big uh, kind of militant Nabucco, Attila operas. It also explores the tyranny of the class structure in which the corrupt hierarchy in it, uh, conceals its own crimes. We wouldn't know anything about that today and tyrannizes ordinary people. In this opera, the nobleman Rodolfo falls in love with an ordinary village girl, Luisa, whose father is retired soldier and whose mother is deceased. But once Rodolfo's identity as the son of the local count is discovered, he defies his father by refusing to marry his cousin, a young widow duchess, in favor of marrying Luisa. His father's outraged, he insults Louisa as a gold digger, and he has her father imprisoned. Meanwhile, we discover that the Count and his evil henchman, Worm, murdered the former Count in order to attain power. The only thing that stops the Count from imprisoning Louisa herself is that his son, Rodolfo, knows of this crime and threatens to reveal it. Meanwhile, Louisa's father is imprisoned, and she's desperate. Worm who certainly lives up to his name, comes to her and forces her to write a letter saying that she never loved Rodolfo. She was only ambitious, she was only greedy, and she was actually deeply in love with Worm. <laughs> Louisa tries to defy him, but it's the only way that she can free her father from prison, or possibly worse, by writing this letter. Then Worm makes sure that Rodolfo sees the letter, so he'll think he's been betrayed by Louisa. Desiring to escape from his forced marriage to the Duchess uh, and what he believes to be a betrayal by this faithless, heartless girl, Louisa, and from the clutches of his father, Rodolfo comes to Louisa, who, bound by her promise to Verm not to reveal the secret so that her father can remain free, admits to writing that letter. Claiming thirst, Rodolfo shares a cup with Louisa and then reveals to her that they have both been poisoned. Now freed from her promise, since death is impending, she tells the truth to Rodolfo, and this is kind of where we'll begin watching today. I wish we had more time uh, for this uh, remarkable performance from the Met, 1978. We start watching kind of after the poison starting to take effect. Uh, it was a time the Met boasted some wonderful Verdi singers, and here we see Placido Domingo in his tenor incarnation. And we hear the fullness of tone of Cheryl Milnes as Miller and Scotto this time as victim rather than villain, with James Levine sculpting this death scene beautifully from the podium. The only real satisfaction we get is that Worm gets killed at the hands of Rodolfo, and his father, Rodolfo's father, is left realizing that through his villainy, he has caused the death of his own son. Thank you. 
That was Ira Siff in the second of three lectures in his Villains and Victims series. Part three is coming up in two weeks on our next episode. To keep up with all things opera, be sure to follow the Met Opera, the Met Opera Guild, and Opera News on your favorite social media platform. I'm Naomi Baratera, and thank you so much for listening.